Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the B-Side for the Film Stage. I am Dan Mecca, and as always, I'm with my very good friend, podcast producer, Connor O'Donnell. Connor, how are you? I'm great, Dan. A reminder that here at the B-Side, we talk about movie stars and movie directors, and not the movies that made them famous or kept them famous, but the ones that they made for cavemen in between and um today we're going the director route we called an audible uh in between scheduled episodes we decided no guest guests be damned me and connor we're going to do a quick one here and talk about a director that we both really admire and that is casey lemons who you know her work whether or not you know you know it um she was an actress first in the late 80s and early 90s you would probably know her best as an actress uh, as Argelia in The Silence of the Lambs. She's uh, Jodie Foster's uh, FBI friend in that movie. And she's in a bunch of other stuff. She's in School Days. She acted uh, second- opposite uh, Virginia Madsen and Candyman. That might right, be the other thing that, you, you, you might would be recognize. That's, yeah, exactly. Candy, I forgot about Candyman. And then um, she's got a smaller role in School Days, uh, which is Spike Lee's second movie, which I believe we mentioned on our most recent, one of our more recent episodes. She's actually, funny enough, married to Vondi Curtis Hall, who you would also know he played. What's the character's name from Daredevil? I was ben, gonna, I was gonna ask you because I couldn't it's ben, remember. Ben something. He's uh, the journalist. Yeah, let um, me. I'm gonna look it up. Give me two seconds. Yeah, and anyway, Vondi Curtis Hall has been around forever, and you know him. He he. He's been in most of Casey's directed movies, and actually Casey Lemons has been in a lot of his directed movies because he is a director himself as well as an actor. And he, I just, I wanted to mention this. Um, he has made a few pretty good movies. Um, his first feature film is a movie I love called Gridlocked with Tupac Shakur and Tim Roth. It was one of, if not... It was one of, if not the final movie that Tupac made, um, came out in 97. Uh, Cassie Lemons is in that. Ben Urich, by the way. Ben Urich. Thank you. Yeah. So he plays, he plays Ben Urich in the Netflix Daredevil Daredevil. show, which I know now is no longer, right? I mean, obviously you can watch the episodes on Netflix, but they don't make those, they don't make those shows anymore, right? I don't believe so. I think it's done. Yeah. I think that was a, Feige was like, enough. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Feige was like. No more Netflix shows. No. Um, but so Gridlocked, I, it's a high recommend from me. Um, it's all about the bullshit bureaucracy of these programs meant to help people like these two addicts, uh, Spoon and Stretch are their names. And uh, Tandy Newton's actually also in it. And it's set in Detroit as well. And they try to, they're trying to get clean, but all the programs to try to get clean they can't qualify and then they go into you know and then it leads them to other places and they get into you know uh other situations it's through it's like in the day you know a life in a day type of a movie um and i just i can't recommend it highly enough i i uh, i love it and yeah just i'm reading about it now tupac actually this movie came out after he had died sadly so yeah this is certainly one of the last movies he was involved in uh bill pope Weirdly enough, uh, was the cinematographer on this movie. Which oh, was a, wow. Uh, amazing cinematographer. Anyway, that's Vonnie Curtis Hall, um, an amazing, talented uh, writer, director, actor. His brother, weirdly enough, and I just know this because I did a lot of research for this episode. Um, his brother is Kevin Hall, who's a really accomplished fashion designer. So this whole family uh, is just really accomplished people. So anyway, bringing it back to Casey Lemons. Um, 
like we said, started out as an actress and made her name ultimately, and probably still the thing she's best known for. I would I would wager, right, in the film world at least, with Eve's Bayou in nineteen ninety seven, which yeah. was her feature debut, which starred Lynn Whitfield, it starred Samuel L. Jackson, it starred Young Megan Good, and the titular uh Eve is played by uh Journey Smollett Bell who you know probably most recently from her really actually very good performance in Birds of Prey, um, where she plays Canary or Black Canary or something like that, a character. I believe that's her character's name. Um, I'll make sure I get it right as I'm talking, but really good actress. um, And she's amazing in Ease Bayou as, like I said, the titular character. Connor, you had not seen Eve's Bayou before. No, we I did had not. This, right? So I kind of actually, this was interesting. I basically, you know, for uh, for Casey Lemons's career, we're basically going to cover everything after Eve's Bayou to to an extent. Essentially, be bookending it. Right? It's everything. So between, she's, made, she's made five features. Yeah. Right, so, so we're going to yeah. cover uh, everything between Eve's Bayou and uh, and Harriet, uh, which obviously came out last year. In 2019, because Cynthia Revo was nominated in 2020, um, which is funny. She was, do you know, she was double nominated because the she song, right? wrote and sang the song yeah. too. Yeah. So that's crazy. Arivo like getting two noms. Yeah, good for her. Pretty quickly. In good, the film good for career. her. Good for her. Um, yeah. it, anyway, so that's, we're basically, that's the span we're going to cover. Um, but I did watch Eve's Bayou for the first time just to obviously get some context. And I was pretty charmed by it. Like it. It's it's a weird movie, uh, yeah. In terms of its tone, it it juggles a lot of different things. Yeah, it bears mentioning this was, I believe, Roger Ebert's best movie of 1997. Yes, yeah, out. he called it yeah. his favorite movie of 97. He like, yeah. and he, uh, by uh, Casey Lemons' own account, was his praise of the film was big in kind of helping it find legs, right? Like when he kind of came out of the gate, yeah. Uh, after I believe it was at Toronto. Yeah, I mean, I can look it up. I, you know, this was a festival movie. Yeah, and, it was basically and, and, it was on the festival circuit. Ebert had seen it, loved it, um, and that sort of helped give it legs. And it became kind of a you know an indie uh, an indie hit, and kind of put her on the map in that regard. Yeah, and it's funny this. So yeah, this this basically this movie made basically fifteen million dollars. It cost three, and. For that year, it was the highest grossing independently released movie of that year. And what I do think is funny about Casey Lemon's career is, and we can kind of, we'll get into this when we talk about our three B-sides, but I don't know that she's at least financially found this success ever again, which is kind of interesting. Harriet similarly wasn't in, was like an $18 million budget. And I think it did okay. Ultimately overperformed, made something around 40, a little bit more worldwide. So I'm sure Harriet and it's, you know, financiers were, you know, mildly happy with that, with those receipts, but the three B sides we're going to talk about all were sadly fairly significant failures at the box office, yeah. um, which we'll talk yeah. about. And it, but she's, I, I we we talk a little bit on this pod about like you know auteur theory and whether or not that tracks and sometimes right. it does and sometimes it doesn't and I I wouldn't say she's an auteur but she definitely has trademarks she has like little things that she does that you know which is why I'm glad I watched Eve's Bayou because they're just 
there's some striking visual things she does in that movie. That movie, right. you know, it's sort of a magical realism type sort of situation. Southern Gothic yeah, story. Yeah, it's a Southern Gothic. Yeah, so- yeah Southern, Southern Gothic, Gothic story. Right. Um, basically about kind of the nature of truth, right? Essentially is sort of, and like point of view is, is extremely important to the movie. Um, and part of that. Uh, one of the characters is a clairvoyant. So there are these images uh, that that right. The get... Aunt, Aunt, Aunt Moselle, who's Debbie Morgan, yeah, is who, this uh, like psychic... who gives a great performance actually in the, in the movie. Yeah, no, I mean this is and look, I mean, I mean, you know, in this we we both watched a lot of interviews with uh, I think with with uh, Lemons and I I watched a few with Vondi Curtis Hall as well actually. Um, and what always comes up and this is an obvious question I suppose for any journalist to ask her uh, is you know as someone who's an actress does that help you you know when yeah. you're directing these actors and she always kind of. I think she always hedges with her answer because that's a I, it's an easy question. And it's like, how do you answer that? It's like, yes, obviously. Right. And she talks about how great Jonathan Demme was mm-hmm. as an actress director, which we all know, of course, because of the great performances he got out of so many of his great actors. Um, and I think the same can be said for Casey Lemons. I mean, I think it's like and starts with this first movie first. I mean, yeah. she's getting these amazingly. Uh, layered textured performances from every single person yeah. you know where it's and like such different acting styles right like lynn whitfield who is kind of an underappreciated you know uh, actress in her own right has such a sharp you know face right yeah. and, and 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 way about her and you know her versus the sam jackson performance which is so bombastic and you know very apropos of sam what sam jackson can give yeah, yeah. he's a pure person he's it's yeah. just like that that dynamic alone is so interesting and then even the megan good and journey smollett the two daughters like it's you know a, a softer kind of more responsible megan good performance and then you know journey smollett as this kind of a little sharper sort of yeah a, like yeah you know like one being more sam jackson's daughter one being you yeah. know like it's very smart and yeah i think that kind of goes through that comes through and I think I, all of her movies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I would agree because I think even, you know, I, I, I think the three main movies we're going to focus on are a little bit of a mixed bag. But I do think, to your point, the thread through all of them is that like they, they all contain something to talk about, no doubt. And they all contain like really, to your like you said, interesting, like textured performances. Um, and so I think that's something she's definitely proven herself to be extremely good at. Um, those three movies specifically, uh, we haven't really mentioned them, but after she does Eve's Bayou, she does a movie in, uh, she doesn't make a movie for a few years, but uh, she does a movie in 2001 with Samuel Jackson, where she reteams with him called The Caveman's Valentine, um, mm-hmm. which I'm happy we got to talk about because we actually were initially kind of talking about doing this on our sam jackson episode which we will do down the road a little bit um you can bet there'll be some red violin in that a hundred percent can i tell you so we dan and i both this movie was uh of the of all the ones that we watched it was uh difficult to find we'll say yes so so we both had to purchase it on amazon uh which you know happy i did but uh, glad to contribute but it is just funny because i now just own I just right. own Caveman's Valentine. Cave, so, Caveman's Valentine, you know, not a, not a, uh, not an action adventure you'd put on Willy Nilly. Right, on you're not going to just yeah. randomly. I, I'll say this about this movie: 
This is a movie I may put on again, but more in a sense of like in a, you know, in a world where we ever have people over again, I might be like, can we just watch like two seconds? Like, yeah. Uh, well, you, you got to go to the scenes in his head. Yes. No, no, no. Right. And with, like, with, and with, just even the, the sheriff's so, <laughs> or sheriff's or whatever it's called. Seraph, the seraph, right? yeah, yeah, like seraph, the seraph yeah. angels. And amazing. He, he, amazing. He calls them moth seraphs. It's oh. the there's richard gears nearby prophesying this prophecy. is my favorite kind of a failure frankly as a yeah. movie uh mm-hmm. I, I will say the movie is a failure like i don't really think it quite succeeds maybe at at maybe not any of the things that he tries it just at least there are certain some some things it tries and it doesn't quite stick the landing on um but i i 100 i'm just with it do it trying all those things um Essentially, it uh, it takes place in New York City. Well, hang on. Before we jump into it, I just wanted to, before we jump into Caveman's sure. uh, Valentine, mm-hmm. I wanted to take a moment to use this movie as a segue uh, to talk about smaller production companies. This came up in our oh, sure, film yeah. stage Slack channel, the film stage show Slack channel. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe a lovely listener named Kevin brought this up and... We just started chatting about, you know, small production companies and, you know, what they are in the business and kind of what, you know, what what kind of movies they make and how that's changed and everything. And I mentioned, I think we've mentioned this on this podcast, I mentioned to in the Slack that me and you, Connor, we both interned at a small independent shingle called Killer Films uh, when we were just starting out in the business, as it were, um, in our young 20s, I guess, or late teens even. and. Um, Killer Films is run by Christine Vachon and Pam Koffler, and you would know Killer Films from probably primarily their collaborations with uh, with uh, Todd. Oh my God, what's his name? Todd Haynes. Who? Todd Haynes. Thank yeah. you. Todd Haynes. I was about to say Todd. Um, Todd Field. Well, I was going to say Todd Graff because oh, I actually okay. once knew Todd Graff, who made Camp and other movies, and actually got me the internship at Killer Films. Oh, so enough. you have a you have, there are a couple Todds floating around and, in your uh, brain, and obviously yeah, Todd yeah. Field as well. But anyway, um, Todd Haynes, you would probably know Killer Films from those movies. So stuff like Safe, right? Um, even stuff like Poison in the early '90s was a huge. Uh, moment for queer cinema right which we all we, you know poison i think is uh, better known now than um than it was then and that's poison if you don't know that was one of todd haynes's first movies and it's it's basically very indie stylized adaptations of jean genet stories if i'm not mistaken um which i would i would urge people to seek out um just as almost a cultural artifact it's a very interesting movie um because of the kind of the stamp of time in independent filmmaking, which we'll I'll talk a little bit more about as we're talking about Casey Lemons, actually, and just like what she represented yeah, in, in a, that way. A couple of these movies, I mean, particularly uh, Caveman's Valentine feels yeah. so specific. time. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. So we were talking about Caveman's Valentine. And so, okay, talking about these smaller companies. Franchise Pictures was an independent production company that was a part of Warner Brothers Entertainment, right? And they, they, I don't believe are around anymore. Yeah, it looks like the last movie they were a part of was the Wendell Baker story, which if you, I remember watching, which was a Wil- Wilson Brothers movie. It was Luke, Andrew, and Owen Wilson all were in a movie together. It was a weird comedy. Um, 
and they ultimately um, went away. But they produced The Caveman's Valentine, which ultimately got distributed by Universal Focus, which, which I don't even of- think I'd ever heard of. And that's the thing. These movies, these shingles don't really exist the same way anymore, right? Like, yeah. Um, like for example, stuff like Paramount Vantage, right? right? So like a movie like Babel, which got Oscar nominations, came out in 06. Yeah. Paramount didn't, didn't Paramount uh, Vantage it go sorry. Go oh no, no no, I was just gonna say like Paramount Van- Vantage, yeah. I mean they had a big moment though, because didn't they weren't they the ones that released No Country for Old Men? Yeah, I mean, I wanna say I can look them up as we're talking. Um they but like, but just to be clear, that's a part of Paramount, right? So it's a label of the company Paramount, which is one of the big Hollywood studios still, right? To this day, you know, Paramount. So this is one of these things where it's just like, you know, yeah, Babel, they did Black Snake Moan, Into the Wild, No Country for Old Men. There Will Be Blood was also under the right. vantage shingle. The Duchess, which we talked about, Revolutionary Road, right? But then after Nebraska, from in 2013, you, you don't see any other movies from them, right? So this is the thing. We're in a different time now. We're in a time of Amazon Studios, a time of Netflix films, obviously, right? Stuff like that. And bringing it to that, right? Caveman's Valentine, the budget, and this just gives you a sense of kind of the time. The budget was 13 to 14 million and it came out and made less than a million, right? It was a big flop. Yeah. But like, that budget for a movie like that just wouldn't happen unless I suppose it was through a Netflix. And even then, I don't even know if that would happen. Like I, I will say though, I, watching this movie, cause I was looking at that, at the same numbers, like while watching it basically. And it does feel like it's on screen. Oh no, no, no. It looks, you know what I mean? It like it's good. not, it's not to I, say that it doesn't, it's not like this, like, yeah. you know, you want like, and we've talked about some movies like that where you're just like this movie cost. You know, well, look, this, this is the money, point. But- Pe- people, people tweet about this all the time, and I get what they're saying to a degree. Yeah, the, the, the movies like the Caveman, the Caveman's Valentine. You now you watch with a bit more nostalgia, perhaps because of that exact thing, where you know a movie like like on Netflix, they're more they. It's the the lighting is way more even, right? There's yeah. a sheen of mm-hmm. it's it's lit more for your computer screen, right? Like yeah. it's, and it does look flatter. It does, of yeah. course. And I think that's something that gets a lot of mention and different reviews and whatnot. There is a sheen that goes over a lot of those streaming properties. Yeah, and I mean, every once, in a while, a every once in a while, you run into one that, that you know, and, and like, look, like I've seen very good movies that were released through Netflix. You know what I mean? So it's not like, but uh, it is a thing that, you know, not all of them look like uh, the Irishman, you know what I mean? Or like, or like they, they just don't all look or feel like, uh, like movies. Right. And right. it, to watch a movie like this, it's interesting. Cause the, and I will say this, this movie isn't, it's not like this movie is like God's gift to cinematography or anything. It's a pretty, to your point, actually, it's kind of a very relatively evenly lit movie. Like, you know, it's not uh, it, it doesn't try anything super crazy outside of uh, some lighting flourishes it does within, you know, as it pertains to Samuel right. L. Jackson's mental state and things like that. But yeah. And and yeah, no, totally. And I think just to kind of put put, put a pin in in in, uh, in the talking about the smaller companies. So, like, you know, when we were to killer films, 
they ended up getting involved with um, the Mildred Pierce HBO uh, series, you know, miniseries. That, that's uh, when I Todd, That's when I worked yeah, there. Yeah. Todd Haynes was a part of. And that, I think, really helped them kind of get back to where they are now, which is, you know, they're making cool things again. And, and I think they've survived. And they're incredibly impressive, right? Like, and with a company like that, for example, they got their overhead from an accomplished producer, director. He paid their overhead for many years, which is how they kept going. And obviously, they made stuff like One Hour Photo and Far From Heaven and really cool, interesting, provocative pieces of independent cinema and still do to this day. So that's they're an impressive success story over three decades, which I think is important to kind of acknowledge. And then just more recently, you have stuff like at a higher level, something like Summon Entertainment is more like a mid-major, which is they get a, a lot of influx of capital early on and they make movies. And Summit's a good example. Summit got um, a yeah, Best Picture Oscar when they gave Catherine Bigelow the money to make The Hurt Locker, right? And they were the company who initially, and we mentioned this, I think, briefly on our Sersha Ronan episode, they got the rights to make the Twilight movies when right. yep. other bigger studios passed. And so they had a lot of success early on, but they kind of blew their load, as it were, to be so crude. And they also had a lot of kind of bigger flops. Um, so ultimately, by 2012, only a couple, only a few years after winning that Oscar, Lionsgate acquired them. And so that's why Lionsgate now crazily enough has both the hunger games and twilight kind of in their library right because so you might still see the summit banner here and there but they are Lionsgate, part of Lionsgate, right and then you have stuff like broad green pictures was around for only a few yeah. years they really invested in terrence malick's movies they did stuff like song to song and um Night of Cups, and the movies just didn't get any play at all, and they never really found their footing, and they they ended up laying off everybody and kind of closed their production. Uh, but then on the other side, something like Bleecker Street, which is still around, they do okay, right? They I I think maybe similar to Killer, they're not overreaching, right? They made the Kitty Green movie, The Assistant, which came out. It was at Sundance earlier this year, and um, ultimately had a lot of success on VOD. Um, even though it never really came out in theaters because of the pandemic. And there's even an article I was reading where um, Bleecker has a deal with Hulu to release on Hulu its theatrical releases. So if you go on Hulu, there's stuff like Teen Spirit with Elle Fanning. Yeah. It, and it, The Tomorrow it, Man. That's the deal that um, – that's part of the deal that Bleecker made with Hulu. But what it was interesting. I was reading it. Maybe I'll link to this. The assistant might go to Netflix – because it never got released in theaters, which is a bit of a, we'll see, right? X Factor. Right. And obviously, Kitty Green has a relationship with Netflix with her uh, documentary, Kate Plays Christine. And Julia Garner, who's the titular assistant in that movie, is on Ozark, right? So there's this weird connection that might get the assistant on Netflix, which wherever it winds up, seek out the assistant. It's a very, uh, it's a very good movie. Um, 
But so that's just, you know, there's other stuff and we could talk about this forever. We don't have the time. SDX Entertainment's another great example of kind yeah. of a mid-major where they're kind of floundering right now. I think they got a lot of investor money early from China. They had a lot of really success. They remember Bad Moms. Bad yeah. Moms performed really well. And I think that was good for them. But they had like early flops too, like Hardcore Henry, for example. They produced Free State of Jones, the Gary Ross movie with uh, Matthew McConaughey that just didn't make a lot of money. So you have this niche, you know, and like, for example, stuff like Blumhouse, which is a production company has, but it's part of universal, right? So it's not, it's not like a standalone thing. Yeah. The interesting one, I think in this whole conversation, because I know know what you're going to say. Yeah. I would argue at this point, they are a major, so it doesn't matter. Right. Or it doesn't count. But there are like the A24s of the world. Well, I don't right, think A24 are, is major, though. Like, I, like I just ma- feel like, like a major a, studio tradition, traditional well, right. definition it's not, is yeah, like it's the not big like a Paramount, Universal, yes, Fox. Right. I mean, no, look, Fox doesn't exist anymore. Right. Fox is gone. Yeah. So right. now you have Disney is Fox. Right. Yeah. So. But I guess but, my point is, yeah, is that like they're is not, its own brand. Yeah. It's like a weird sort of nebulous thing, because like I I could mention to my sister a24 and she would be like oh yeah you know like it's you know what i mean like so it's a it's it i mean obviously like you said it's not it's not a major in the sense it's not one of the you know the 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 big six kind of thing that that type of deal Right, right, right 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 but it's it's this own other entity but it does have it sits in this really weird nebulous place like and I, I'm this is not an original thought. Like other people have tweeted about this and joked about it, but it is something that pops up a bunch of times. That like it feels weird that like, uh, you know that like a studio has a fan club. Like do you or not like not a stupid well, but, like how I a, mean, you know a, distrib- look, a distribution company has a fan club. Like yeah, it's it's a good example of finding your brand yeah. and and exploiting it yeah. in the right way where where you have. A devoted group of fans. You have a devoted, you know, of seemingly, and this is not meant to be, you know, this is not meant to be accusatory, but you know, seemingly devoted group of, of film critics, right? You know, yeah, like who, no, no, who yeah, like 100%, their output. But I, but I do think, speaking not even as a critic, but purely as a viewer, right? What I think is interesting is when was the last time in cinema history that a logo was an indicator of potential quality. Not to say that A24 hasn't made bad movies, but I feel like the weird thing about them is that I see a Universal logo in a trailer for a movie or a Warner Brothers logo, and I'm kind of just like, yeah, okay. Like, well, it's I those think, people I mean, making they, another movie. Where, But as well, soon as you see an A24 logo, I think for people who like their movies and for m- most people, there is this thing of like, oh, this will be interesting, right? Like, I, like, I guess. I mean, I do think it's also just – it's also a matter of time. You know, like Universal, if you go back long enough, that meant, you know, schlocky horror movie. Which sure, now, sure. We, right, we right. revere those movies as well we should. Yeah. But like that's obviously changed, right? You know, um, bringing it slowly back – to Casey Lemons, The Silence of the Lambs right. was a movie that I, I want to say, um, what was the company that went bankrupt that released it? Um, it went bankrupt basically the year after Silence of the Lambs came out. Orion? Um, Orion, thank you. Yeah. Orion Pictures. But they're, they're back now, aren't they? Aren't they like, I don't making know, movies but, again? But Orion Pictures for, is a great example of, you know, that was a company 
in the 80s and early 90s that made a lot of interesting movies and ultimately went bankrupt after like really soon after winning a shock best picture oscar right so they did a bunch of different things and you know when i see that logo when i go back and watch those movies i always think like oh kind of have this nostalgic yeah you know thinking of that logo but you're right you're right a24 is a great example of kind of a company who figured out pretty early on the kind of movies it wanted to make figured out really early on how to hedge like they had a good they had a deal with direct tv for a period of time which i know we've mentioned on this podcast where like stuff like slow west and yep. mississippi grind went direct to direct tv streaming after a limited theatrical release and i think that money in a24's pocket and I, what what do i know but i would bet those types of deals help them continue to rise up the ladder and make stuff ultimately like you know find people like robert eggers to make the witch sure right? sure to get them on the map sure. to build their brand to ultimately now you know they're this kind of cool kid you know uh you know independent production company which i yeah. think is pretty impressive um but yeah bringing it back to caveman's valentine it speaks to a different time right franchise pictures this movie comes out it's got a pretty modest budget ultimately nobody sees it. it the reviews are middling like connor i think mentioned it's based on a novel by george dawes green fun fact about george dawes green he's the guy who founded the moss the storytelling oh uh, really thing which is a great you know if you know you you might know the moth where the you know, events people go up and they tell stories and there's been books published and stuff. I, I used to there's, love it's a, there's like a podcast too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, a podcast. Yeah. I think that used to be the events. I haven't listened in years, but I mean, I used to love listening to the moth where, you know, people would just go up and tell amazing stories. Um, so that's him. So that's it. This is his novel. He wrote the screenplay as well. And essentially I'll just give you the quick synopsis of the caveman, caveman's Valentine. It's this, um, once a uh, brilliant pianist who was a genius at Juilliard is now a man living in Inwood Park in a cave. His name's Romulus. The locals call him the caveman. Yeah, Romulus Ledbetter. Ledbetter, yep. He's played by Sam Jackson, like we mentioned. He suffers from paranoid schizophrenia and... He's basically harmless. He has outbreaks in, you know, in, you know, whatever, you know, obviously, obviously the, the, the effects one would imagine of something like schizophrenia. Um, and a, a heavy part of the beginning of the movie is establishing rather quickly the narrative he is living in his head, which is essentially this evil force he calls Stuyvesant that lives at the top of the Chrysler building, Connor's favorite building in the world. <laughs> and um, this like evil light emits from the Chrysler building that he sees. And he feels his entire purpose is to survive against Stuyvesant's evil ways and fight potentially the evils that that evil force will try to kind of put upon the world and warn people. Right. Um, and ultimately He's in his cave towards the beginning of the movie, and he's got this TV that's not connected to everything, anything. But in his mind, it turns on, and there's a message that there's a Valentine outside of his cave for him, and it's on Valentine's Day. And so he goes outside, and sitting 
right outside of his cave is this young man who's dead for and frozen right February right, in New York it's February yeah and he's convinced this is the work of Stuyvesant right so he approaches his daughter who's uh, ingenue ellis who you might know from a million things great uh, actress young here she's lulu she's a police officer in new york and uh, like i mentioned romulus's daughter and she, he's like investigate this this poor young man he died it was killed by stavis and you gotta look it up and she's kind of all right dad you're crazy like let me get you help but he won't have it and um the cops, of course, dismiss it as an accident and through different um, other connections in the park and in the city, Romulus comes to be convinced that the man was killed by this famous photographer, this famous photographer named David Leppenraud, played by Comfiore, who like this is like this feels like exactly the role <laughs> Comfiore like should always have played like creepy. Yeah. Creepy. Isn't rich. it? Doesn't it make you? Is, isn't you know, it a little weird that he? It, doesn't it feel a little weird that he never played like a Bond villain? Oh yeah. I right. Mean, like he. It's like he. It's right there for him. Like I. And it. it I well, mean, he's I, one of these guys. Like he. He. He's been around forever. He yeah. came. I feel like people probably people who are our age or older might know him from the stand, right? The TV. Right. 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 He's, he's got a big part in that. And, um, and he's been in everything, but he's so perfectly kind of (laughs) creepy in this movie, which ultimately works to the movie's advantage. I was Um, trying to explain this movie to my fiance in terms of like, it's tone in terms of like just the way all the goings on and stuff. And the first thing I could think of was it's like a season of true detective. Like, well, isn't it funny? Didn't it feel, I mean, and maybe I'm just being, cause it's, you know, Casey lemons is in the movie. It felt kind of in the world of, of uh, science of the lamps. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. You know, it's yeah, yeah, very yeah, yeah. kind yeah. of like, you know, this idea of, and to be clear, she's what, not in this movie, but she's in silence of the lamps. Right. Right. Which, she yeah, directed this movie, yeah. but the, the idea of like, what is the trauma that you are surviving? Right. And, right. and obviously that becomes what this movie's about. And the best parts of the movie, in my opinion, are there's this beautiful production design yeah. in which you are you are invited into Romulus's head and he lives in this kind of cathed this like this like hellish yeah, cathedral in which I don't even know did- if I'd say it was hellish, but it's it's just like this. This well, old... it's certainly paradise lost. It's yeah, a Miltonian. Yes, yes. Like, it's got it. There is a biblical nature to it. There's for sure. like these moss like seraphs that are flying around as he's working out the literal demons in his head. And the, yeah. there's a piano. Yeah. And every time, every ultimately, I don't think we need to spoil the movie, but ultimately, he tries to clean himself up with the help of this amazingly white bullshit liberal guilt. Uh, character played by oh, Anthony Michael God. Hall, which actually I, is, I thought was lovely. Yeah, I no, very funny. I actually I loved that whole part of the yeah. movie. Um, yeah, yeah, he basically yeah. Anthony Michael Hall basically befriends him. Anthony, like, I mean, not really. Like, no, admit, no, like, but in a, in like, yeah. A, yeah, in like the worst possible way, right? In like, the, yeah, like he in like it, a very is, in a very broken windows 1990s yes, way. Like, yes, you know, like, it, yes, a hundred percent, and so. Uh, yeah, out of essentially, we don't want to keep bringing up Joe Biden, but it's a very no, no. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, but it is like a, it is like a very much like a yeah, like 90s, 90s white guilt, like, yeah, shit. Yes, yes. Uh, and so Anthony Michael Hall kind of, and what I think is kind of interesting though, that I liked about all that stuff 
is, and maybe I'm just, again, you know, maybe I'm just watching the movie through a different lens, but like I'm watching the movie and I'm thinking like, oh, Casey Lemons knows a million percent what she's doing here with this character. Like, oh, like, totally. Cause it's, cause it's not a, it's not a benevolent character. Like there is like, like he is decidedly shitty and everything he does and says comes with this air of like this fucking guy like you know and like it it so it's interesting in that regard and it again it's one of those things that she layers in the movie and again i i have i have not read the book so i don't know how much of this stuff how this stuff plays in the book i would imagine you know i i i I don't, this is one of those ones, and we've said this a couple of times in other instances with other movies we've covered, where I don't know if I would like this book. Like, well, I, I mean, I don't know. know. I mean? Like, you know, I don't know we, how we, much like, better it would play, like, frankly. Like, right. I mean, I I think I like this movie a bit more than you did. I, 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 so I saw this movie when I was young, younger at least. Yeah, I remember and it was, being on cable. Right. And I yeah. mentioned this a lot on this podcast. You know, when I was younger, my mom would rent stuff and she would often just like, you know, return it late or not get around to it. And I would often wa- like just watch these movies. And this is one of these movies. I would have been 12 or 13 when it was available at Blockbuster, maybe 14. And like, I remember watching it and this just being, you know, this is an indie movie yeah. in every essence in, in the sense of like, you know, it's, you know, in a one, especially you, you have these gay characters, right. Who are like, you know, in the park at night and there are lovers and there's drug addiction, right. Right. And all these things. And it's not very judgmental, which I appreciate. And I think that's another kind of speaks to, and we'll talk more about this as we talk about our movies. Casey Lemons, I think is a very generous filmmaker, not unlike Jonathan Demme in her lack of judgment of her characters. Yeah, she's, she's compassionate. Very, very compassionate yeah. filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, well said. And I just remember being younger and being kind of, if just in entranced by the movie because I don't know that I'd seen anything like it, of course, right? Like, and funny enough, similarly, when I was younger, not to bring it back, but the Red Violin, also with Sam Jackson, yeah. was a similar thing where like it was just on TV. Yeah, they have similar vibes. It, kind of. And I was kind of like, "What the fuck? Like, can you can, <laughs> movies like this exist?" Yeah, like, you know what yeah, I mean? like, yeah. I thought I, I thought well, there was just Indiana Jones. That's you know? what I. Like, that's you know. what I. That's what I loved about this movie, though. Watching it, like, because I had only, like I said, I caught this movie a couple times on cable, like pieces of it, you know, flipping through channels. I remember seeing the title and obviously i mean at the time frankly just the image of sam jackson in this movie like burned into my brain because he looks so different than he has in any other movie he's ever made right Um, oh yeah he's so good in this movie. he's it's a guy an earnestly great performance actually um and it, it because it's i mean speaking to his performance quickly like it's a performance that he he leans into it without uh it it feels real, but also like he manages to leverage. And I think this is also credit to Casey Lemons, like manages to leverage the humor in the situation a little bit, but without like, it doesn't feel exploitive. It doesn't feel like a caricature. Betty, this is Romulus. Hi, Romulus. Romulus is a homeless man who needs a suit of clothes. Uh, not, not homeless. I live in a cave. So I, there, it's very like deftly handled um, for a movie that I think so. Yeah, yeah I, for, I think for a so. Movie that goes heavy handed with a lot of other things, like and not in a bad way. It's the, one of the things I like about this movie. Um, 
there is one thing actually before we completely jump off here i wanted to bring up about um caveman's valentine that actually Brittany pointed out to me um she basically she watched like the first 10 minutes with me i watched it like late last night she watched like the first 10 minutes with me that was like cool i'm going to bed but let me know if they resolve this one thing that's really annoying me right and i was like okay cool i will and that is what is the distinct what's interesting about that movie is we mentioned casey lemons as being a compassionate filmmaker compassionate storyteller and she's clearly compassionate to the plight of samuel l jackson in that movie um Mm -hmm. But but what's strange is I feel like the big thing with that movie, which is sort of why it's fun to watch, even if it doesn't quite stick the landing, is that like no one in that movie behaves like a normal person. Like everybody's reaction to things all feel inappropriate, frankly, to like the way a normal human. Well, yeah, when when Romulus is trying to act like in a comp, like a not schizophrenic person for lack of a better description people it's like the art world so people take his eccentricity to be like sophistication yeah and it and 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 it leads to and not to i don't want to dive back into the weeds on this movie but it just leads to interactions that you're like no normal human in their right mind would behave this way but there was one distinct scene with uh with his daughter where they're in the car and it's a nice scene they're like talking and stuff and he then, you know, they they have a moment where they are just talking like a normal father and daughter and they're like reminiscing. And then he brings up um, the this case, quote unquote case, right? He's not a detective, but the this murder that he's trying to solve with her help. And he kind of gets back on his conspiracy theory bullshit a little bit. And she gets super mad at him and kicks him out of the car, right? And it's a weird thing. And maybe it's a 2001 thing versus like a right now thing. But like, why is Samuel L. Jackson even homeless in that movie? Right? Like, why? You know what I mean? Like, why would even if you don't like your father or or. No, I think the movie makes it clear. He's he refuses to go back there. So so he like it's a it's it's a. Choice, choice by him and like the the idea being maybe they've tried to institutionalize him and oh he, yeah yeah because she because they never really like, touch on exactly what like what if there was a like specific yeah, the rift. implication i took from the movie was he his paranoia that from the schizophrenia goes as far as like he doesn't trust like the domestication even because that in right. itself is the evil element. So like him so. living in a cave. It just feels it does feel a little weird that they just kind of let him be homeless, I guess is the thing. But right, um, right. But again, it and and her reaction to it isn't um it's one more of like, oh, I can't believe you're like she basically is like, I can't believe you're just not acting normal, right? It's a very like it's a very like, you know, uh dispassionate uh well reaction right i but i i always appreciate that stuff because if you if you had a dad who was schizophrenic right there's there are levels to it that i think there would be a point where you'd be like god damn you know her her lens into the story is not necessarily it's not like it's casey lemon's uh you know lens into the story as far as that you know the view of that character it was was just like an interesting moment because that was like the one part of it that i kind of was like okay like i'm having trouble tracking this but th- then again there are just so many other things in that movie that are kind of bonkers that 
you know that that is yeah. not the uh, the hill to die on with that movie no no yeah, it's true. there's but, a lot of different kind of open things in that one other thing that i think and this is funny i we will we're going to briefly talk about harriet as well which is her most recent movie um though it's not one of our b-sides but terrence terrence blanchard does the score here who i believe other than black nativity yeah has done every one of her scores yeah and this score is unbelievable yeah it's great i love this score it's i've been great. listening to it on spotify since watching it yeah so, the piece that he plays uh is is like incredible yeah and i would just simply say terrence blanchard you know he he just recently did defy bloods for spike lee which is out now on netflix which i i loved uh recently watched uh he's done most of spike lee's movies as well um terrence blanchard is right up there for me if my favorite composers are thomas newman and rachel portman working right now mm-hmm. right below them is terrence blanchard yeah no i so i think he's one of the greats he's he's certainly one of them that you know there's yeah, uh, there's an expectation, right? Like when you see his name, you know, totally. you know what I mean? Uh, so I, you know, I think the score to this is great. Um, like I said, it's, I think it's mostly pretty like e- evenly shot and lit for the most part. There isn't anything super stark or crazy about this. Uh, but what I think is interesting, cause Eve's Bayou is kind of similar and she sort of lifts a few things from that and brings them here as well, where, and I'll, I'll keep talking about this as we keep talking about the other movies, but uh, I feel like she, she loves anything sort of ethereal, cerebral, or, you know, sort of dissonant, right? And to, uh, visually speaking, right? Because she, I feel like, tees you up with these visuals uh or these palettes rather across her movies that, that feel relative, you know, relatively just simple, like, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. And it's the way that she decides to inject these like spurts of like visual insanity into them. Um, that makes them super interesting. Like in Eve's Bayou, there's a moment, one of the first little clairvoyant sort of visions that's put in the movie. Um, the, uh, the Aunt Moselle character, uh, tells this woman that, you know, her son who had run away that she can, you know, she can find him in, I think Detroit or something like that. Um, but basically tells, you know, and he's like essentially like doing heroin in a bathroom. And there is this quick cut to that vision that she has. And it's like this broken bathroom floating in a void. And it's like this, like, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that's like, sort of interspersed with, like I said, relatively sort of innocuous seeming camera work and lighting right. and stuff like that. Well, um, and I think it's interesting. And this, this so, movie does a lot of that too. That, yeah. You know. Well, it's interesting because, and this is a good segue into our second movie, Eve's Bayou and Caveman's Valentine are very visually interesting. Ultimately, I think. Yeah. And the next two, right. And the next one being 2007's talk to me, are not as visually interesting though I did I did basically like all of these movies but then it's almost like she returns to that visual palette with Harriet yeah, no, which that, is a, that's which exactly is a my, that's exactly my point stunningly like, beautiful movie that's exactly yeah. my point like there I don't know if I would call her an auteur but there are certainly sure. these these trademarks uh well, that that so, pop up and so and t- talk to me is interesting so talk to me is the second movie uh 07 
got a lot of notice for the amazing Don Cheadle performance at the time, but also got a lot of criticism, which we'll get into because of historical inaccuracies, yeah. which I, I, once again, I, I think I've made myself clear on this podcast. That stuff bothers me. It's kind of like they're making a movie here, but okay. Anyway, so um, this is interesting. Casey Lemons, who like she's made these movies, but I think her, her day job, you know, over the years since Eve's Bayou, I think has primarily been by her own words, writing and rewriting, right? Like a lot of people. And Talk to Me is, is a great example of, she was hired to rewrite a script here and in the process of rewriting, fell in love with the characters and wanted to direct it and ultimately was able to. And this is six years after Caveman's, um, this unfortunately also underperformed, right? Barely came out, made less than $5 million in theaters. Um, this is a focus features movie, kind of another, another production company that does still exist, but now kind of is owned by other people. Right. So it's like, once again, another example of kind of how times have changed. This, this feels is, like a focus features. Movie. It does. Yeah. No, it does, from that time, especially. Yeah. So this is the story of Petey Green, who is a very, very famous radio DJ um, in the D.C. area, primarily from the late 60s into the early 80s. He ultimately had a local TV show as well. And um, the man who kind of discovered him was his friend, Dewey Hughes, who also became a fairly famous radio personality in his own right. Um, and then uh, later on, a, a music producer. Right. Uh, so songwriter. Don Cheadle plays Petey Green. Uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor plays Dewey Hughes. And the amazing Taraji P. Henson oh, plays Just Petey Green. Steamrolls like, her way through this movie. She's so good. And I mean, yeah, this is a performance first movie, which isn't surprising given uh, the director, like we said. Um, the writer of this movie is Rick uh, Famuyiwa. Uh, he, I know he directed episodes of The Mandalorian most recently. And he made The Wood and Brown Sugar. Right. Which are two which are two movies I love. love, I, love. I've, yeah, no, no, no. I, I don't remember The Wood. I remember Brown Sugar, though. Yeah, so uh, Brown Sugar starring the world's uh, second most handsome man behind Brad Pitt, uh, Tay Diggs. Um, <laughs> and yeah, this movie is a pretty straightforward biopic of Petey Green with this unbelievable performance by Don Cheadle. Good performance by Gia 4 obviously, too, and Traji P., um, you have other great people in here too. Cedric the Entertainer, Mike Epps, Martin Sheen has a couple funny scenes, and even her. Martin Sheen's uh, so cute in this movie. He's cute. Yeah, he's and, so uh, cute's and the Von, word. Vondi Curtis Hall, uh, Lemons' husband. Yeah, is is like the, is the radio DJ who basically gets the shaft because he's like too boring. Right. And, and so basically, Petey Green, if you don't know, in real life was a con convict who got off early from uh prison because he was this likable guy and he and, and then the beginning of this movie actually shows it and this is apparently true he like talked this uh fellow prisoner off of the roof uh was trying to commit suicide and the warden acted favorably towards pd and got him out early because of that act of helping the warden and apparently pd Green in real life later later on would go on to say and this is a line of the movie it took me it took me five minutes to talk him down off the ledge but what, what the warden didn't know is that it took me six months before that to convince him to get up there in the first yeah, place yeah yeah, yeah. it's right great. which which is great so yeah um yeah that's then basically 
Dewey Hughes, uh, a Jewel Force character, ultimately takes a chance on Petey Green, puts him on the air to the displeasure of his boss, E.G. Sonderling, played by Martin Sheen. But of course, uh, Petey Green speaks to the people. The people love it. He becomes a sensation. And the rest of the movie becomes kind of the ebbs and flows of fame, you know, and what does it mean to find success and how do you define success? And, you know, the most interesting part of the movie, and I think, Connor, you would have to agree with me, and this maybe speaks to the Lemons as a filmmaker and what she's kind of willing because this is a, probably her most straightforward movie. Yeah, movie, it's that very, makes sense. yeah, yeah. But, but, but the idea of identity and what does it yeah. mean to be black and, and yeah. what does it mean to, you know, in, in a lot of her movies, you, you deal with stuff like, and this is very evident in her, in her Netflix show that you can, that just came out called self-made about Madam CJ Walker, this idea of passing right in, like in the black community, like being light skinned or being dark skinned yeah, yeah, and yeah. like, you know, too black, right. Quote unquote. And like, what does that mean? And this thing of like, Chuatel Geofor is very straight laced, right. And very kind of, you know, wear suits and doesn't, have any sort of affectation on his voice, you know, for lack of a yeah, better term. Yeah. And PD Green ridicules him for that. And and there's a, an amazing scene at the end of this movie. And they they base it all around uh Johnny Carson in the Tonight Show where who is essentially uh, like Chewy Talajafor's like idol kind of well and then yeah. at the end he reveals it's kind of spoilery, but this isn't really a spoilery movie. He reveals to Tragedy B. Henson like he grew up in the hood with Johnny Carson on his TV as like the outlet, right? Like if he, yeah. he was like, if I can be like Johnny Carson, I can get out of here. I see this show. My whole fucking life is this show. I learned to walk, talk, and dress watching The Tonight Show. I can tell. <laughs> And show me that there was a world far away from the Anacostia projects. He reminds me of my brothers. Loud ass shit talkers. Funny as hell. Always had me cracking up. Milo was the funniest. He was my hero. He could say anything do anything he could have been a well he's at Morgan's every Tuesday night waiting for somebody to give him a good game and so this idea of like now that he's achieved that he has to now go back and figure out who he actually is and that idea of like, it's not wrong that he strove to do that. And the way he found to get out and make something of himself and all this was to act like that. But ultimately, now he has to actually look himself in the mirror and say, hey, what kind of person do I want to be? Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the movie frames it in meeting Petey Green. He begins to see that side of him. And, well, and, and I think just know, the idea of authenticity. Right. And and, sure. and that's like a huge thing. One of the big knocks, there's a, a pivotal scene in this movie that takes place on The Tonight Show 
which uh, by many accounts did not actually take place. Right. And this is where I would be inclined to agree with you, Dan, where it's like, who cares? It's a great scene. Well, I'm, glad, I mean, like, like, I'm glad it's yeah. in the movie and it's it's there narratively yeah. to serve a specific purpose and it serves its purpose per- I'll tell you this. Right? So, I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you this. The only, because uh, I, I read about this too, and this, like, this shit just makes me mad because I, I do feel like these types of campaigns hurt movies. Like we talked about it with Selma where it's like, Selma did fine, but like it should have done so much better. And the sure. bullshit about it, like not being true to life and vilifying Linda B. Johnson, all that stupid garbage is like, it's just stupid because it it like oversimplifies, you know, you're making, you're creating a narrative, right? Right. The only, the only thing here it, when we talk about talk to me where I would tend to maybe understand from Petey Green's family's point of view, because they did not like this movie is and, I don't, and what's funny is I don't even think you need the scene, which is why I, I I would be curious to ask Casey Lemons about this. There's a scene at the end of the movie. Peter Green died young in real life. So there's a scene at the end of this movie where Dewey Hughes speaks at his funeral. And that did not happen. And by all accounts, Dewey Hughes didn't even attend. Right. So, okay. That, if I see that in a movie and Peter Green's my father or something, I'm kind of like, fuck off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Fine. But, but yeah, the Tonight Show thing got a lot of heft. And it's like, you need to create the moment for Petey Green to have this kind of humbling, you know, this is who I am. And, and, and ultimately, equally importantly, for the Dewey Hughes character to have this, you know, well, what did I want out it, of this? It's, it's a scene that, that is the thesis of the movie, right? So exactly. like, it, yeah, it's, 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 and you know, I, and you I can't know, imagine the movie without it. And um, what I couldn't, what I couldn't help thinking about too, um, um, not to run too long on this movie, but what I couldn't help thinking about also was the whole thing about how Chappelle left Chappelle's show and Chappelle, yeah. Chappelle's whole thing ultimately when he came back was like, you know, it's that he's told the story, right? He, he, I don't remember what sketch it was, but he was, they were recording one of his sketches and it was he was saying the n word or something like that in the sketch yeah and he saw in the background with the crew a white crew member laughing at the at what the joke he was making and it made him uncomfortable and he realized he the reason he had started to make the show had gotten warped by the public and by the people who love the show, yeah. right? And that bothered him to such an extent he walked out on $50 million, right? And it also reminds me, and I, if I can find this article, I'll link to it. Chris Rock, there's this great piece, at, maybe it's in New York Magazine or something, or uh, yeah, or the New York Times Magazine, where they talk about, you know, if you remember, D'Angelo had his kind of comeback a few years yeah, ago yeah, after yeah. kind of disappearing for many, many years. And it was like, you know, he, you know, he's at the height of his success. He had that amazing, everybody knows a music video where he has the amazing fucking creases down to the D. Yeah. We all remember the video. <laughs> amazing, amazing songs. And um, Chris Rock talks briefly in that piece about his frustration with some black entertainers. Like your, I don't know, your Lauren Hills, right? Your, your D'Angelo's. And there, there's this self-destructive streak that can happen when you hit this peak where like your the thing you're putting out in the world becomes beloved by everybody and when and and when it feels like 
the the origins of what that was is somehow being manipulated yeah what what that does to you and it's a very honest approach to making art and i think talk to me and even though it's manufactured whatever it really does touch on that quite brilliantly what does it mean right like what it, what do you want people to get out of your art does it matter? Do you care? What's and, the who, art like, and who is it for? Right. Who's like, it for? Who's yeah, it for? Like, right. And, and I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I based, I basically loved this movie. I would highly recommend it. Right. Uh, agree. agree. It's currently, I watched it on Amazon through stars. So it's currently there, but I imagine you could find it in other places as well. It is. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to your point, it's her most straightforward movie as a director uh, at least in that it, you know, it doesn't have any of those flourishes that we talked about. It doesn't have, uh, there, you know, there is no magical realism or, you know, or genre tropes or anything like that. Um, it, it really just kind of is this relationship between these two men as entertainers and voices and activists and uh yeah. and, and people and it's 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 an interesting and, dynamic to watch there is and, that and, and, and dude you would agree with me right right now watching it oh dude it was, it's so relevant yeah, there's yeah, a whole I mean, I mean, it, and this happened in real life pd green when martin luther king got assassinated you know the country burned obviously right and pd green was credited and this is true this is not some bullshit from the movie this is true P.D. Green's voice of reason to the world, to the D.C. community, um, was credited as quelling the riots, right, and 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 bringing people together. And watching those scenes in this movie was yeah. so, I mean, of course, affecting now because yeah. we are in a real, you know, God willing, a real time of change and progress in our country, and you know. It was just interesting to watch. This came out only 13 years ago, and yet it felt so immediate in those moments. Yeah, I think um, there, there are just a couple moments in this that I, yeah, I don't know. I, I was really enamored with Cheadle's performance, um, and in particular, I love this movie's ability. You know, when you compare it to like other biopics, to not really get distracted with the things that you think it might pivot towards. Right. Like it, I, I, well, I, yeah, like stuff you get worried about, like the Martin Sheen character, right? When you watch this movie at the beginning, you're like, oh, is he going to be some racist? No, and like, he's, uh, right. And he's like, ultimately, it's, it's like, no, right. And then it's like, oh, is, you know, early on, uh, PD Green is, isn't faithful to Trotty P. And you go, like, ah, oh, is he going to be this philandering asshole the whole time? And ultimately, no, right. Like, not like he really, sort of right? is and it comes and goes, but like, but the movie's I, not going to stop to worry too much. Exactly. About yeah, and I right. really, really liked that. Like I liked I the, it was, it's, it's about so, these two men. This, yeah. And these it's, so, and it's right. so lean in that scope too. Like it, it addresses all the things enough to make everything seem multidimensional. Um, with his drinking and, and, and all that, like, cause that was my other way is like, Oh, is this going to become like a, like, he comes home at one point and uh, Taraji P. Henson is not there and she has written in lipstick on the bathroom mirror, 
like, don't call me until you've been sober for six months. Right. Right. And right. so I had this moment where I was like, oh, God, is there going to, are we going to, is, I know. Are I we going like, to pivot? Are don't we pivot show for like me 40 him minutes to, you know, what's it called when you're in, uh, when you're in withdrawal? Like, I don't yeah, want to yeah, see right, right, Petey right. Green in withdrawal. I don't right. want the Dewey Cox, this is a bad period montage, right? Like, this I, is a dark fucking yeah, period. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, and you don't get it. You don't get it. No, no. And she's a super fucking smart filmmaker in that regard. Like it, she pivots in all the right ways. She keeps it lean. And even to the point of the Tonight Show thing, she puts the things in there that like, and like to the point of those devices in these kinds of movies, even when they're fictionalized, like she, it's engaging. It's an engaging scene, right? Like the movie is better for having that scene in it than it, than otherwise. There was a, a, Th- uh, piece I had read recently, it's resurfaced um, from Vulture. Uh, it's a really great piece uh, by Angelica Jade uh, Bastian. Uh, okay. And it's uh, just, what are we to do with cinematic monuments to the Confederacy? It's all about Gone with the Wind. It's a really, really, really great piece. Um, yeah, but there's one bit in it that I that I kind of clung, it popped in my head, not only because I just reread the piece, but also uh, just watching this movie. Is that like movies should never be meant to be a historical record, right? Like we should never lean on them in that regard, right? So to your point, Dan, when we when we get hung up in the, you know, in the inaccuracies and it's I mean, I think it's one thing to your point. It's one thing if you're going to rewrite something or change something that completely changes the color or tone of something uh, in as it as it pertains to like someone's character right so yeah maybe maybe chuatelage for giving the eulogy is a little bit more over the line than say yeah. the tonight show sequence but yeah. um i just wanted to bring that up because i also do think that's something that even just carries over into uh into harriet but um, well yeah harriet it weirdly goes the other way i think which we'll talk about yeah. in terms of kind of I think sometimes you're damned if you do, damned if you don't with sure. factual representation in movies. But um, and the same, it's funny. Same thing with actually self-made the Madam C.J. Walker story. That's yeah. got a lot of criticism for it not being true to life as well. Which you know, I think, and that unfortunately, I think, basically, unfortunately, nowadays more than ever. I mean, if you're gonna base you know, you're going to get flack from somebody yeah. if you're going to, because it just, all the information's out there to be mined and to be reacted to and whatnot. So um, now this third movie of hers is probably the most um, different from all of her other movies. If Talk to Me is kind of her most down the middle movie movie, this is certainly her most kind of, oh, I'm surprised she directed that movie. Yes, And yeah. this, this is Black Nativity. From 2013 was released uh, during Thanksgiving and is based on Langston Hughes's play of the same name. Was a unfortunately quite a big flop, cost 17 million, made about about seven. Uh, and is a musical, right? It's a holiday musical adapted from, like we said, the uh, Langston Hughes plays Black Nativity. Uh, it was personal for Casey Lemons. This is a musical. She saw by her own account many times when she was a young uh, woman with her mother. And I think this meant a lot for her uh, adapting. And 
I enjoy the movie, actually. Um, I was raised Catholic, and I still consider myself Christian, if a bit lapsed in my Catholicism. So I'll be totally honest in saying the religious nature of the content here and the music that comes with it basically worked for me. It was kind of like a warm blanket. Um, you have Forrest Whitaker playing uh, the Reverend, Angela Bassett, who we've covered on this podcast, playing his wife, Tyrese Gibson playing a a young man who whose motives initially are not known to us. And then you find out more. Jennifer Hudson in this as Naima, who is the mother of the lead uh, in this movie, Jacob Lattimore, who you might know from Collateral Beauty, which we also covered we on this also podcast. Uh, which, one he, which one is he? Ta- time? I believe he's Time. He's Time in Collateral Kira Beauty. Knightley is Love. I think right. we all remember that. And, and then Helen is Death. death. Yeah. yeah. You know, classic. We remember it well. Um, Jacob Lattimore is Langston, uh, obviously named after Langston Hughes. And also, Fondy Curtis Hall in one very good scene is a pawnbroker who has actually a really yep. nice exchange with Jacob Lattimore, actually. Um, Nas is also in this movie. Yeah. And makes so two, is Mary, make, <laughs> and so two is Mary appearances. Well, it's kind. Of, it's so. Uh, he's kind of a prophet, right? His name's Isaiah. Yeah, he's meant to kind of be like a a prophet of sorts. Mary J. Blige gets a little bit more play as like the angel, um, and she's got this crazy white hair and and whatnot. But um, it's essentially, you know, it's a movie about deliverance, right? It's a movie about faith. It's a you know, it's a basically single mother Jennifer Hudson kid literally literally cannot afford to keep her son in Baltimore anymore at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, right? they They're going to get evicted. And he, she's like, get on this bus, go to New York. There's people there who are going to take care of you. They're his grandparents. That's Angela Bassett and Forrest Whitaker. They uh, have been obviously been estranged from Naima, Jennifer Hudson, and are very stubborn about it. Which, what I liked about that is a vi- in a very hypocritical, stupid, Catholic way. Where it's yeah, like, sure. these righteous people who... In all of their, you know, righteousness, you know, can't freaking I mean, to be get clear, on. They their... are not Catholic, but yes, in a in a. Are they not? Way, sorry, what, I don't what think are, they I'm, are. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm I'm putting my I'm putting yeah, my religion putting, onto. But, but, but to but your point, regardless, the, they're, the way they're, you might see, the way you see in a lot of just very right. religious people sometimes that yeah that, right yeah. yeah so whatever their faith is and yeah, yeah I'm, I'm putting my own you know being raised Catholic onto this but. Whatever their faith is, it's that it's that thing that you run into with some of these people where it's like you can preach it, but you can't live it. Right. Where it's right. like anyway. And, that, and the movie is about that, which I, I really liked. I liked the dealing with that and the kid ultimately being the force of like, yo, 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 whoa, whoa. What, like, let's let's stay here and talk about this. Like, why are we heart? Why are we just like letting these wounds fester for the yeah, whole lives? There's, there's something to this movie. Um, not unlike, not unlike caveman's Valentine. It takes a lot of swings in a couple different directions. And I think because it does that, it doesn't necessarily land all of them. I wasn't necessarily disengaged from this movie. Like I was in it. I think it weirdly doesn't commit enough to yeah, be I wanted it, yeah, I was a just musical. Say, like it's it, exactly. I wanted it to take more chances. Yeah, it's very strangely produced in that, and I almost mean that in the like the literal sense from a music standpoint. In that, 
not even the song. Like I was confused that it was a, like, I did not know that it was a musical before I started okay. watching it. So okay. it, I was confused because the music, I feel like traditionally, right. If you are setting out to make a musical, the music is mixed and produced in such a way that it is meant to at least be diegetic. Right. That sure. That it's with, I mean, this is, this is way more traditional. Well, in that it, it, it sounds like they're dubbed. Like it sounds like they're, they yeah, don't, it well, doesn't like, sound like they're like in the old, rooms that they're in. Well, or, they, but very much more like the old, old way. No, no, I guess, I guess so. I'm just trying to, I'm, I, I guess I'm thinking more like recent musicals have, have done this where it's, right. it's built in a way where everything. Yes. It, yes. At least songs, even if they, even if songs turn into, uh, turn into you know something that's more produced. Well, no, I think you're you're and right. has a sheen now, on it. Nowadays, they at least start in kind of a I'm yeah. this person in now, this place, and we you know like it sounds like it's coming from the room or the area that they're well, in. Now, so it's a little weird in that regard that like particularly when Jacob Lattimore starts singing the first song in the movie, it's like it sounds like he's a dude who's just lip syncing to the song that's already playing as the soundtrack of like no, the no, opening no, I of the agree. movie. I mean, know? you're, you're right. This is very old fashioned. This is very, very like, uh, like heavy handed. Right. Yeah. And I think nowadays I feel like Joe moviegoers more used to something like begin again once, Right, you know, even like Miz, right? The way that Tom Hooper did, Les right? Miz, I was going to say, or even like a, a La La Land, right? Where like La La Land, those right? those songs are constructed to at least begin and end in a way that is that feels like you're in the movie and then you're sort of escaping it, right? Like the thing about La La Land, which I had never known about until I saw La La Land, was the jazz. Oh you, yeah, have you not heard about jazz? I had not. Wow. And it's crazy because. I had heard about Black Nativity and Langston Hughes, but somehow right. I've never heard he about, knew jazz. Nothing no. about jazz um, until Ryan Gosling explained it to you. Shout out to uh, Jordan Rapp. Uh, La Land is his favorite film, and that <laughs> in no way is a lie. Um, anyway, yeah, no, I agree with you. I think this is a very heartfelt adaptation from it, uh, Lemons, and I think, but it also though, isn't really a full adaptation because no. the so. I have not seen the original Black Nativity, but from my understanding, it's basically a it's a retelling of the classic nativity story with gospel music, right? Yeah, um, and, and you get a moment of that in this movie. Yes, where right. so Lattimore this, this movie is almost into, it's yeah. almost the equivalent of making a movie about judgment and truth and honesty, and within that movie, there doing a version of 12 angry men so you're going to call the movie 12 angry men right like it's like it's almost like that kind of thing like it because the whole i kept thinking that while like while watching the first half of the movie of like wait like the, and is he like is he jesus or right like how is this translating right and it and it because it doesn't really and that but there are little things like you said like there is the well, nice character he, yeah and he helps he helps a homeless couple who he helps literally find them shelter. Tyrese ultimately helps find them shelter, which of course is, you know, Mary and Joseph, right? And the whole, and you know, the, right. the homeless, the homeless woman is pregnant, you know, and all that. And so it's, it's interesting. And I mean, granted, she does really awesome things with it, visually speaking, towards the end of the movie, when sort of the production of black nativity that's going on within the movie. Well, that's also it, another, I will agree with you. That's like another confusing thing is like, 
like then he goes to his grandfather's church yeah and they're doing black and they're nativity doing black nativity right church. so that and that and yeah. you're like oh okay that's like where this is coming from right. it's a we and again i i i don't want to lean into criticism on it too much because like i said i have not seen uh the original work but it is just interesting because it doesn't seem to have that much you're saying langston it, hughes is a hack is what you're saying right Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, but it, it's it's just weird. It doesn't seem to have Read that much in common. Clear, it, it's just it doesn't seem to have that much in common with it. So it's it's right, strange right. that I I kind of was like almost wishing. And I mean, you being my friend of, of a long time, I I am not like a big musical, guy. a huge musical guy. I don't really hate them. It's not like a blanket. It's not a blanket rule. It's not a blanket rule. It's just more of a. And I I get why people like them. It's just for me, there's always like. And I've seen ones that I've liked and enjoyed. It's just a matter of like, there's always the extra step I have to take to yes, like, yes, 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 to yes, get yes. There, which right? is, is look. I think Kelly, my wife, I think it's similar with her. I think you know, it, and it's you more, can watch a musical, but the minute it's like people singing, you're like, oh, okay. It's just you know, uh, my thing is if you're not going to integrate it well enough into the narrative, I feel like as a device, it can feel disruptive to me. So one thing, one moment I loved in this movie, I will say, and this mm. is, you know, I like this movie well enough. Certainly, I think probably my least favorite of her five movies and certainly of her of the three we're talking about specifically. But, you know, if this is her worst movie, you know, only only speaks to how talented she is. Um, I loved towards the end of the movie, uh, Langston, the Jacob Latimer character, does ultimately go to the church where his grandfather, Force Whitaker, is uh, giving his, you know, sermon as it were you know while they're celebrating christmas and everything and langston falls asleep yeah but the movie it, it like tricks you because you think he's going to get reprimanded for like dozing off but what happens is he dozes off and has this awakening of sorts that helps him and i always so i my my real life example of this is uh, many, many years ago, my family, we watched 2001 and my dad, as he's wont to do, dozed off at some point while watching 2001, which is 2001 is a very kind of slow, yeah, you got medita a, med meditative movie. You don't my sit dad, in like a super comfy chair while well, watching 2001. But my dad made a great point. My dad was <laughs> yeah. like, I think that speaks to the movie's um, uh, brilliance because he was like, I love the movie. I guess I dozed, but it was like I felt a connection to the movie even while I was detached from it because I was like engulfed by it. Yeah, and I, yeah, think, yeah. I think this sounds this might sound silly, but I'm just this is speaking in my real life. Like I think that can happen to you. I saw um I saw an amazing jazz musician perform right before the pandemic hit with my father-in-law. Um and I dozed off on and off throughout his performance and similarly i was entranced so i did not feel like i missed anything at the end of the night right like i yeah. did not feel like i was like oh i can't believe i paid you know 40 bucks for that and it was yeah, like yeah, yeah. it was part of the experience and so i just like in this movie how the langston character who's ultimately a kid in a church on christmas eve yeah, yeah, yeah. get something out of that i thought that was kind of a powerful no, and I, Thanks. Like like I said before, I think it's a way for uh, Casey Lemons to sort of introduce some of that, you know, totally. visual flair she likes injecting. Um, and I think it works. It's like it was one of the one of the 
parts of the movie that I was the most fully engaged with. I was like, oh, this is like kind of cool and interesting in the way that she's because then the the homeless couple like is in, there in his sort of lulled state is there and like you're doing sort of a literal nativity thing for a second. Um, and it yeah, I don't know. It's it's really um, it's really interesting. And, and this was a Fox Searchlight movie, which now is also kind of in a period of flux because right. of the Disney. The Disney they still part. exist, so, though, right? They're, well, yeah. yes, but it's like, you know, it brings it to this thing that Brian Roan has been complaining about rightfully about like, yes, but also they put out A Hidden Life by Terrence Malick and you literally cannot find A Hidden Life right, anywhere right. because I right. mean, Disney doesn't <laughs> care. Right. You know, Disney's like, A Hidden What? Ah, we'll, we'll get to it in Q1. 2023 we gotta right. get artemis foul out there baby <laughs> oh, God. which um, now by the way let me just say as a big kenneth Branagh defender it's been getting all these terrible reviews i have to watch it now artemis yeah Fowl. I, I don't even know i haven't watched it but i don't I do, even know I, what, do, I do basically like most of his movies so i don't even know what artemis foul is you know what i mean i literally am like <laughs> what so i'm just i'll put it on whatever um but yeah no i yeah i didn't i i didn't love this movie just because i felt like it was it it was in like two different places um, in terms a good, of a good Tyrese performance though. Yes. He's, he's very good. Uh, I mean, that's again, no one's really bad in the movie. No, no, like no. everybody's pretty good. Like Forrest no. Whitaker's good. Um, it's yeah, it's it. it and, and again, that speaks to Casey lemons uh, being an actor's director and, and very, very good in that regard. I just think I feel like the obvious counter, right? If I were to say this movie could work on its own as a kind of story about a boy and his family around Christmas and and dealing with forgiveness and faith and all of that, right? Do you need to make it a musical, right? The answer is probably no, but the proper and and you know noteworthy counter to that would be well, then it's like, then you just wouldn't talk about it at all, right? Like, it's right. just, then it's just nothing. So, like, it's this weird thing where I do feel like the music in this movie, while the music is very good, I think, like, the numbers yes. are good, the songs are good. I think the way that it's worked into the story is, is it, it needs a little bit of work, but it, it it's all good. It's just, you know, it, it none of it quite congeals. Um, I will say the one thing that I found about this movie while I was researching it that I thought was kind of kind of interesting is that she uh, Casey Lemon's sister had passed away and um, she before she made this movie and she sort of made this movie wrote this movie as a way of kind of dealing with her own personal struggles with with her faith while grieving right and so all that's definitely tra- transparent in the movie, uh, and I think it's definitely interesting in that regard. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't really, I, I don't think I would discourage anybody from watching this movie. It's also, it's you know, it's not crazy long, which God bless it, right? Like it, so it's it. I would agree with you. I I do think it's uh, it's the least of all her movies, and it is my least favorite of the ones we're talking about for sure. Yeah, and I mean. You know, that so those are the three we focused on. Obviously, Harriet, which we want to talk about briefly, came out last year, like we said. Um, it's about Harriet Tubman, you know, long gestating biopic about, you know, one of the most famous Americans ever, ever right, of course. 
played by Cynthia Revo, um, who you know certainly come up on this uh, podcast and also on the film stage show. She's in you know been in movies like Bad Times at the El Royale, Widows. Um, you know she has been around. Uh, it's crazy because she's only been around for a few years, right? But it no, feels she's. Like I mean, she's really she's the staple, making uh, making making her mark. Yeah, thank um, you. But she plays Tubman. And um, I really like this movie, actually. I think I liked it a little bit more than you. We were talking about it before recording. I was kind of surprised how kind of dismissed it was when it came out. It premiered at Toronto. It has fine, got fine notices, right? People love the Arrivo performance um, and whatnot. But kind of ultimately for a movie about Harry Tubman that finally got made, didn't maybe get the wave of adulation you would expect. Right. And I, and I wrote in my letterbox review, I think it was a little bit more interesting and complex than the reviews kind of made it out to be. I would I, agree. I, I would agree with that. I, yeah. yeah, I think I, I like this movie fine. I think it's, I think it's like good, you know? Um, right. I, I kind of land in that camp of if there is one movie about a person, right. Not, and not saying that we need that, but in the way that, like, you know, Spike Lee's Malcolm X is the Malcolm X movie, right? Like, that is the thing you go to. Uh, and if this is supposed to be that for Tubman, it, it's not necessarily the movie you expect. But at the same time, it's also, like, the weird – I think the reason it comes out being sort of fine is, like, it also is kind of, like, exactly the movie you expect – for a large portion of it well and this is what i was going to say yeah. when we talked about the the criticism of like talk to me and mm -hmm. self-made uh the netflix series where those those pieces of work were criticized for altering things for the purposes of their narratives and maybe you know is that right and blah blah blah, blah. and they certainly alter things here making harriet of course which is a little bit more forgivable just because, you know, she was alive so long ago. Right. right so right, right. there is plenty of documentation about her, of course, but ultimately you kind of do need to create, you know, a more of a through line. But like, so for example, just like the Janelle Monet character didn't exist, right? right. The Marie, her name's Marie Buchanan. didn't exist. The, um, the, um, uh, uh, Billy Lynn, what's his name? Joe, 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 was it? Alwyn. Joe Alwyn. Yeah. Joe, the Joe Alwyn character. I love that you called him Billy Lynn. <laughs> Billy Lynn. He, the Joe Alwyn character in that way did not exist, right? Like, like that family did exist to some degree, but there wasn't like a son who became the Tommy Lee Jones, you know, yeah. to her, Harry, to her, Richard Kimball the whole time. So obviously those are fabrications. But I saw in some reviews this criticism, like you're mentioning, of the movie being too down the middle, like, right, for the Harry biopic. And it's funny because it's like, okay, well, you're making the Harry Tubman biopic. Like, what do you, what did you want? Right, like, you I, want, there might be a hesitation. Like, I can understand, obviously, a hesitation to get crazy with it. That said, what I liked about this movie w was when it got a little crazy, right? And 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 the again bringing back and you mentioned, uh, how, you know earlier how this movie probably more than any of the others uh, since Eve's Bayou brings back sort of a lot of like if the, the, those two movies bookending her career thus far are interesting, are interesting, yeah, yeah. Well, and also like look, John Toll lends this movie and john toll is you know for my money 
uh, you know, right next to the usual suspects, the greatest cinematographer ever, right? Like, right, right. You know, him, Deacons, right? I mean, you go down that list, like uh, Demi's, what's Demi's guy's name? Um, uh, who did Science of the Lambs? He's right up there. Um, like, you, I'll find the name, but he, it's unbelievably beautiful looking, that movie. Yeah, and, I would agree. And Tak Fujimoto, sorry. Um, it, it was Demi's long time uh, cinematographer. So you like have these amazing cinematographers. And so um, Toll's right up there with him. Uh, For My Money, Legends of the Fall is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. And Toll Th- did... Uh, Thin, Red, Thin Red Line. Yeah, right. He did Thin Red Line. He did Last Samurai. Did Last Samurai, yeah, another beautiful movie. That's a great movie. movie too. So, um, you know, and he, and he Toll, right, Toll, obviously, you hire him for grand epic right. wide shots warm lush vistas, greenery and and you know and so yeah. there are moments where you know harriet when she first becomes free she makes it into um you know i think it's pennsylvania or something and she makes it there and she looks out right at the pasture yeah. and it's like you know you feel like god is there yeah she's right? she's and, looking and, at know. like a sun a sunset or a sunrise and it's and speaking of god it's important to mention god in this movie is very important so not unlike black nativity right this is something in casey lemon's work that that does protrude throughout in, in as much as eve's bayou it's more cultural and it's more kind of like you said connor like it's more identity and and point of view focused and then Black Nativity is obviously the most obvious, straightforward version of any sort of faith you're going to come into with her films. And then Harry Tubman, the movie Harriet, in real life, Harriet Tubman uh, suffered a very bad head injury when she was young. And she would have what now we believe were like probably epileptic seizures of some sort when, as she described them, and you can read this in accounts. Like, so, um, um, uh, William Still, who ultimately wrote this very, uh, inter- uh, very, you know, well-known and very uh, intensive account of the Underground Railroad, um, is uh, a character in this film, and he, when he first meets Harriet Tubman, right, because she comes to Philadelphia once she's free, we see him write down brain damage possible brain damage when talking to harry tubman because of the spells that she admits that she goes into yeah, and she recounts she and, recounts the the incident in which it like initially happens and right that and, she suffered the brain trauma and just so we say, say leslie odom jr plays william still yeah. who as i mentioned was a real philadelphia Wait, abol- can we also just talk about like the irony of the fact that she makes a musical and then she makes a Harriet Tubman movie, but she populates that movie with Cynthia Erivo, Janelle Monet, and Leslie Odom Jr. And, and nobody sings. And nobody I sings. Know. I mean, I know. Cynthia Erivo sings a little bit and quite well, obviously, but it is just funny because I'm know. like, why is this true. not a musical? Like, what? Like, it's true. What you have doing? Janelle Monet and, and Leslie Odom Jr. Yeah. in there and they, they don't sing at all. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. Um, And the William, I guess the point is simply, um, God's a part of this movie because, and 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 Arivo says this in the movie. Harriet Tubman believed when she had these spells, God spoke to her and told her the way to go to avoid being captured. And of course, as we know, Harriet Tubman in real life freed over seventy slaves, 
during her time working for the Underground Railroad and was never caught, right? And was called Moses by many in the South and was believed to be a man, a white man, you know, by for a long period of time. Um, and was a bit of a legend, right, of sorts because of all of that. So that's all fairly true to life. The William Still character is a complicated character, of course, in this film because he is a free man and he was born free, I believe, right? And yeah. Janelle Monet's character similarly uh, is also born free. And there's this element in the movie of this idea of like, if you're born free, do you don't know what these people are suffering. And William Still is kind of his whole as an abolitionist. He's he's literally recording all these horror stories, which like I just mentioned, he put into this book, which you can read on Google right now, right? You can download a free PDF, which I recommend doing. I've, I've been reading it just in preparation, and it's you know equal parts horrifying and fascinating, of course. And um, but it's a complicated character because he is ultimately trying to limit Harriet and then is on her side and is her champion, but also, you know, doesn't believe in her in some, and I do think that's always a role like Leslie Odom Jr. is doing his best. It's an interesting character. Cause you go like yeah. as an actor, the, it must've been very hard to figure out how to play, how to character. navigate that. I, well, I, and I think what's great about like um, what about what you're talking about is the it's the most fascinating aspect of the movie because i think it manages to tackle faith in a really interesting way and 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 it may be like the best possible way you could argue the importance of faith to someone who maybe doesn't even have it right like right whereas like you know black nativity by comparison, right, feels like it just sort of trades on more traditional sort of uh, themes uh, about faith, right? In the same way that's even uh, that that movie is not unlike, you know, it's like Casey Lemon's doing her version of A Wonderful Life, right? Like it's a very like, it, it you know, it's a Christmas movie wrapped up in, in maybe broader, more traditional themes about uh, uh, faith. But this movie, what I love is as someone who is not necessarily a very spiritual person, it's the way that I look at faith in terms of its importance, right? Because the whole thing with Harriet's visions and, you know, and what that led her to do and and the the courage and or comfort that that gave her, it's like, okay, so God could be talking to her and she could be doing all these things. That's one thing, or it could all be whatever, and she just. But as thinks, long as she but, believes right, it, but as long as she believes it, then like, what does it matter? Like, if that's exactly. the thing that she needs to get through it, uh, then yeah, like, who cares? You know, that's how I feel about faith. Like, yeah. I don't besmirch belief to anybody. I mean, if if believing in God gets you through the day, and that's your way, that's your version of self help. And or whatever, do it right. Like obviously, whatever it takes. Like life is hard. Whatever it takes to wake up, to do your best, and to be kind. What bothers me, of course, and what I think what this movie, of course, touches on, which I think this is an example, and you're basically saying this, of why I think it's maybe a bit more interesting than some people maybe at first thought when it came out, is it does make that distinction of like these slave owners are being preached to by 
uh, Von Curtis, who plays yeah. Re- Reverend Green, who is a real guy who ran the Underground Railroad and was kind of like a secret agent because like he would preach to the white folk, but also you know help the slaves trying to get away and you know was was good at his job, right? And was was a was a spiritual man, but knew what that meant in real life. And these white assholes considered themselves faithful while choosing not to free yeah. and abuse well, these other people and while it's partaking great... in the institution of slavery exactly <laughs> yeah and it's that it's that it, it it seems so obvious where it's like go to church pray to god but the minute you use that belief system as a reason to oppress others because of their lack of whatever then it becomes something else and something I can't get behind. This movie, and not that this isn't well-trodden ground, of course, but I do think through the character of Harry Tubman, this movie does explore that quite um, beautifully. The one, my biggest criticism with this movie, we texted about this, and I, for the life of me, Casey Lemons, call me and tell me, <laughs> how did, why, why is the Harriet theme in, in this movie by Terrence Blanchard why is there not some amazing theme yeah. out of this? It's, it's a very blah it's score kinda, by it's kinda, the greatest living composer, yeah, you know, the third I, greatest living composer. Look, I, I often wonder about these things as it pertains it's to... It's obviously a choice. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, they yeah. obviously made a choice. Y- yes. And I also wonder, frankly, when it comes to these things with composers, um, I'm a listener, you might know this, you might not, but like composers recycle things. All, oh, the t- yeah. all, all the time, all the time, right? And they all work the with other composers who then. Well, become, even last night, you know, our like, friend Teresa texted us and was like, "Watch, she was she watching? She was Inside watching Man, Inside Man, and she was like, yeah. oh, did did they recycle the Inside Man score for Black Klansman?'" And me and you were like, "Well, Terrence Blanchard did both, so yeah, so maybe. yeah, <laughs> like there's an entire po- entirely a pause." And like, look, like I don't that that's not even to knock the job of composing or whatever. Like, frankly, no. like if the shoe fits right like just you know what i mean like if it's if if something's working yeah then just workshop it a little bit change it up a little bit or whatever but to your point uh i feel like part of the reason this movie lacks a little bit of a punch uh in terms of it's like this is the harriet tubman movie right yeah is that yeah there there isn't yeah yeah there should there needs to be something like big underneath it well even that moment um, i was mentioning where, where you get john toll doing his thing and she's finally free you don't get the accompanying right sweeping right moment. right it's it and feels a little Kay- bit like blanchard is kind of sleeping on and the maybe job and look bit. maybe casey lemons the choice was like less is more here sure. you know we want the images to speak for themselves we want a revo singing voice to be kind of the punctuated spiritual thing throughout all that stuff very possible. It's a choice. It's a creative choice. Unfortunately, in this case, it just felt like an empty pocket. Yeah, it feels a little movie to me, at least, I think, uh, aesthetically. And it, and it sounds like I'm dogging. I, like, I did like the movie and it's got yeah. interesting things in it, but it does feel a little anemic. And I think that's what's weird yeah. about it. Um, it was not a huge budget. It should be said. I mean, I don't I don't think she's made a movie. um for because this movie uh, you know reportedly was 17 million dollars so um right right in line then there right with so i don't know that she's everything made a movie else for, that she's made exactly. what was what was talk to me again what was the budget i don't that know one? that there's a reported budget but i can't imagine it's more than you know i think it was you know 
I would bet you are, you know, 10 million range. Right. You know what I mean? Type thing. Fun, funny thing, just to tie it back to our studio conversation. This Harriet was distributed by focus features, mm-hmm. focus features, just to kind of put a loop on what we talked about, as we mentioned was in 04, uh, in 05, in 07, when stuff like talk to me was coming out, it was its own thing, right? It was created by Barry Diller or sorry, it was, um, it was formed from a merger of USA films, um, universal focus, which we mentioned that was caveman's Valentine and good machine. And, um, it basically became this conglomerate of smaller, uh, film companies like October films, Gramercy that it came together in the late nineties. And in 2014, if you remember film district, which is another one of these, yeah, they had a moment they made drive for example that merged with focus and so focus got all of film districts library but then as as recently as 2016 focus merged with universal which is what i was mentioning earlier so focus though it's its own shingle still is owned by nbc universal so interesting it kind of speaks to like harriet is a focus movie okay but focus ain't making talk to me right it's making harriet which feels more like a universal movie right yeah no, it's, it's, it's it's right on the cusp of like a big mainstream yeah studio yeah. you know so, oscar push yeah. or whatever you know and like another example of of, of a mid-major that came for a minute and went away and i remember just because we were in college when it was had its moment was remember overture films they yeah. made like law-abiding citizen they they paid <laughs> troy duffy they, they they paid troy duffy to make uh boondock saints 2 Right, like, like, so they're so doing those, the Lord's work, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, well, they're gone now, so yeah. they did the Lord's work, and but um, and that's it. I mean, you know, Harriet had enough success, like we mentioned before. It got a Revo, a couple Oscar nominations for the song and for her performance. Casey Lemons, like we mentioned, her most recent work is Self Made, which is on Netflix and came out only a few months ago, which is about Madam C.J. Walker, who made hair growing um cream and you know uh, supplies in the, and the early title, 1900s yeah title gets its name from she's basically a uh, character played by octavia spencer she's basically the first female self-made millionaire yes, uh, yes in american history and so um yeah it's an interesting i watched the two episodes that uh right uh, she didn't direct Cass, the whole Casey, thing she directed the f- first two, two episodes four. yeah the first yeah. two um i did not love it but i don't want to like bash it no I there's finish, i didn't finish it uh, and i you know I, i'll probably finish it there's know? something i i will say i mean there there is some, again something to be said for her leaving her mark to a certain degree um insofar as it's pretty snappily edited um and it's it, so it's got a, some of those punchy little visual tricks she likes to use um so that's definitely there. I mean, it's it's tough also with TV, right? Because it's you know you never know how much anybody really is kind of like injecting themselves. Well, look, yeah, necessarily. And, and self and not to be self made is a good example, I think, of whatever the budget was. The Netflixness does come through. Yeah. It does feel a bit cheap and everything. Yeah, which is, you know that, it's not the end of the I, world. When but. you mentioned before the the sort of. It's all so it's all evenly lit, so it's sort of just kind of 
all looks a little yes. flat. That yes, this, yes, yeah, yes. this movie a hundred right. Like Caveman Valentine looks way better. Well, than... it looks produced right. It's evenly lit. It's a it's a very brightly lit movie, but it's yes, it looks like. But yeah, no, no, like like self made is way more even, in, but in a like negative, yes, like e- a even meaning there no is no contrast. depth. Yeah, like, there is no yeah, depth like, to it. Like Caveman Valentine, just because that yeah. bring it up because that's what we talked about earlier. Is just has way more texture to it. But uh, I, you know, like uh, basically all of these movies, I mean, I, I would recommend it. I think it's I think it's an interesting watch. I think um, her as a filmmaker overall um, is, you know, I, I I'd be curious to see her make another uh, another movie. I mean, it feels weird to say that because she just made Harriet. Right. Um, and uh, but I, I don't know. I would love I would love to see kind of what else she has in store i think yeah she doesn't have anything immediate um and obviously i mean i i suppose no one does right now um, <laughs> right but, <laughs> right but um yeah i mean i she's just one of those people anything she does i think at this point now that we've kind of gone de- gone down the rabbit hole with her i would be very interested it, to see her act you know yeah and it's i mean it, i'm glad that i'm glad that we did this because it's she not unlike singleton in a way she is in and of herself sort of a B-side, right? Like I think given the uh given the waves of um uh filmmakers of color that sort of take Hollywood by storm, which is actually something Casey Lemons talks about in uh, an interview that she did after an Eve's Bayou screening uh with Tiff. Uh that's really interesting, but she talks specifically about, you know, there when when Spike Lee made She's Gotta Have It, you know. And, and that sort of set off a wave that she, you know, she mentioned she partially rode, right, uh, to a degree. Um, all, you know, she, she cites also, you know, uh, Julie Dash, who made uh, Daughters of the Dust at the time. And, um, and, and the idea that, that, that these, you know, these filmmakers and these voices, uh, particularly from people of color feel like this, this trend that kind of comes and goes. And, um, you know, she mentions that, you know, with this newer wave of filmmakers, uh, like Ava DuVernay, uh, like a Barry Jenkins, you, uh, like the Ryan Kuglers of the world, um, that you hope kind of, they're going to be around to stay and be prominent, continue to be prominent voices, uh, in the industry. And it seems like they are, which is obviously a wonderful thing. But it is I I'm glad that we looked at her specifically because I feel like Casey Lemons is someone you would not necessarily think about uh, because you might be more inclined to look at the work of like an Ava DuVernay. Uh, and it's. Uh, yeah, yeah, which is why I'm happy. I mean, yeah, I, I'm happy she was able to direct Harriet because I think if, if, if nothing else, I would hope that allows her to you know, make self-made and make something else and kind of continue to work, like she said. So here's hoping for that. Um, um, I'll wrap up just by saying you can follow me on Twitter, DJ Mecca, as always. Um, I have a couple reviews that should be coming out in the next month or so, just newer movies that I will be reviewing for the film stage. Um, Definitely keep up with us in our cinephile game nights as they're continuing to happen for good causes across the board. And yeah, Connor, I'll let you kind of, uh, yeah, us out. you can, uh, you can find me on Twitter at scruffy looking. You can find this podcast on Twitter 
at TFSB side, also on Facebook. Um, like Dan said, we're sort of doing this in between a couple of our scheduled things. So we'll be doing another one, uh, just the two of us on Robert Pattinson will be our next one. Um, so that should be fun. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And just remember, when life gives you lemons, you make self-made.